You're listening to the Beltway Briefing, a podcast from Cozen O'Connor Public Strategies with perspectives from both sides of the aisle. Now for political insight and strategy, let's get started with your hosts. Hi, this is Caitlin Martin. This is Patrick Martin. This is Mark Alderman. This is Howard Schweitzer. Patrick, Mark, Caitlin, and Towner is back along with me. And so you have Patrick Martin from our Chicago office, Mark Alderman from our Philadelphia office, and Caitlin Martin, Towner French, and me, Howard Schweitzer, from your Washington, D.C. office of Cozen O'Connor Public Strategies. And guys, there's a lot going on. Um, but let me first say Mark was, um, Mark thinks he's being ganged up on, on this podcast. <laughs> he's wishing to give a shout out to our old colleague that he could have Jim Schultz back so he could beat up on Schultz, but Mark, no such luck. No such luck. And the Towner and Caitlin are much too substantive for the spirit of the, the podcast. It's better when Howard, you and Schultz and I would just hit go and, and then stop well, a half hour later. I, I personally uh, enjoy the substance, Mark, and enjoy seeing you beat up on. So it's, it's, it's like my chances. But only two on. It's two to one. I, I like my chances. Let's start here today. There's a ton going on in town, um, but a lot of news this week was made about Lena Khan being appointed to F the position of Federal Trade Commission chair by President Biden. She was confirmed by the Senate, 69 to 28. Um, she is supposedly hyper-progressive, but that's something I actually want to talk about. And immediately appointed chair of the FTC, by Biden. She's 32 years old. Um, she was a professor at Columbia and is, Mark, as you pointed out, six years out of Yale Law School. She's obviously smart, but she's now running the FTC um, where they expect a significant focus on antitrust and big tech. But I want to point out that 21 Republicans voted in favor of her confirmation. 21. In a, in a world where mm -hmm. it's hard, everybody says there's no yeah. bipartisanship. 21 R's voted for her. This week, it, five some... bills were introduced in the House in the big tech antitrust realm with Republican co-sponsors. Um, this is big tech and antitrust is to me, it's not, yes, there's progressivism. Yes. She is in a progressive wing of the democratic party, but I'm not sure whether this prog is progressive or populist and a continuation of the, the Trump theme on, on some level of populism. So Mark, what, what is it? Well, a couple of, of thoughts. Since this is the uh, Beltway briefing, I, I just want to uh, note that inside the Beltway, there's some speculation that there would not have been all those Republican votes had they known she was immediately uh, going to be named which, chairwoman. Which is, Mark, but, I'm going to stop. Let me stop you because that's absurd. I mean, it's an absurd. It's absurd. 
It's everybody the knows. Howard, I don't live. I don't live inside the Beltway. I'm just well, talking. Good. That's why I'm going to educate you on how things actually work. Everybody inside the Beltway knows that President Biden has the power to appoint the chairman, right. Tanner, or the chair. It, there's nothing surprising about it. And nothing. that had nothing to do with those Republicans. That's silly. Oh, no. I was I, I thought I was getting some So consider yourself but, educated, more but educated. But I'm I'm gonna Towner's gonna support me when he gets the mic, but I'm gonna just roll, keep rolling. The uh, the question about progressive or populist is a is a darn interesting one because there is a Republican constituency that is anti-big tech, and certainly the last president was at, at the top of that list. So I think there is a convergence of, of sorts going on. I think that explains the bills in Congress. I think it explains the votes for her confirmation. But I think what is what is maybe more progressive than populist, although this remains to be seen, uh, she's in favor of breaking up these companies. She is not talking about federal regulation. She is talking about old-fashioned Eddie Roosevelt trust busting. And I'm not sure that's where the Republican caucus is on that issue. But I, I have a friend, we were talking earlier, Howard, who knows, uh, who knows her well, has written with her, taught with her. And he said... Um, to me, she's very, very smart, which is an advantage. She is very, very progressive and and is really talking about breaking up these companies. But what she mostly is, is very young. She is 32 years old and she does not have a world of experience at at. The job she is about to take on, as you know better than the rest of us, Howard, this is a, a bipartisan agency, not a department. And she's she's going to have a challenge. She's going to have a challenge holding it together there. Connor, jump in. Yeah, I, I uh, first of all, I have to sort of agree with Mark uh, on the uh, on the and politics I said side. How happy I am that Towner's on these I, podcasts. <laughs> I have to agree with Mark on the politics here. Uh, Rohit Chopra, who is a, a current FTC commissioner, who uh, the president wants to take over CFPB, uh, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. Uh, every Republican opposed in the Senate Banking Committee when his nomination was considered. Um, they are the same. They they are the same. Khan studied under Chopra. She is a disciple. Uh, of his, uh, the progressivism is is virtually identical, uh, and so every Republican voted against Chopra because they thought he was going to head the CFPB, and uh, a number of Republicans voted for Khan because she thought she was just going to be a commissioner because they thought she was just going to be a commissioner on the FTC, one of the one of the progressive commissioners, and so, uh, but it's a difference between politics and policy uh, because ultimately, at the end of the day. Uh, I, you know, I don't know if Mark recalls uh, the podcast from a week ago uh, with regards to the cult uh, of, of Trump uh, that he had uh, he had issued this decree on the cult of Trump. Uh, but there is a strong vein. Of, I, I, recall, of, I took advantage of you. With yeah. out of town. There you go. There's a strong vein of anti-tech 
in the Republican Party right now. Uh, you know, Trump has been out on the stump trying to break them up because uh, they kicked him off of their platforms uh, for the most part. So uh, but that still that still runs strong in the Republican Party. And this is one of those issues like uh, anti, uh, you know, authorizations uh, for for uh, actions against terrorism and things like that, uh, that that strike uh, a balance between the progressive wing of the Democratic Party and the libertarian wing of the Republican Party, and they have a unique constituency. Patrick, jump in. Yeah, I, I agree. Uh, I agree completely. I think, you know, when you're talking about big tech, you have the the progressive side that doesn't that, that really doesn't like the big. Frankly, big anything uh, isn't going to fly with those folks. And then to Towner's point on on the tech side, so you have the the sort of perception amongst conservatives, libertarians that the tech community and big tech community is like Silicon Valley liberals. And so you have sort of a political partisan view there. But then also now there's this immediate Trumpian factor, which is the railing against big tech because he got kicked off of the platform. So it is kind of this weird, you know, convergence. I, I think that this happens with issues that tend to be newer, right? Like we're all still, even as consumers and citizens grappling with how much privacy should we have with you know applications and technology that are still relatively new. And so I think sometimes you're able to get a little more agreement as opposed to areas of public policy we debate on this podcast every week where you've got like decades and decades of disagreement. Um, I think that's where you get you know, some kind of oddities like this, but the part I, I will say her age, I mean, being 32, I, I was just so impressed reading about her history and just all of the supportive people. And to Mark's point about the personal anecdotes, all these people saying she's one of the smartest people they've ever met. Um, it's, it's pretty impressive uh, to have this, this rapid rise. Caitlin. Look, I agree with Patrick and Towner. I think that there is a lot of folks that, you know, on the left and right, and not, and also in the middle, not just, we're not just talking about the outliers here that are frustrated with the power of big tech, some of the freedom of stifling or freedom of speech that we've seen, you know, Facebook taking down posts and, and really serving as an arbiter of, of truth and, and fact and fiction. Um, you know, they were taking down posts where people were sharing news stories about the fact that COVID-19 potentially came from a lab leak in Wuhan. And that's not their role. And there's a lot of frustration that tech has just gotten much too big and that they need to be reined in. So I completely agree that this is an area that makes sense that there's some bipartisan support here. Too much agreement. Too much agreement on this pot. We got to spice this up, man. Well, I already told you that I disagree on the fact that they didn't know she was going to be the chair. I mean, it's Biden entirely at Biden's discretion. Like they're not stupid. They that they knew what they were doing. And anyway, she was getting confirmed one way or another. But that that's my view. You know, I also think having worked in an agency with a bipartisan board, um, it's she controls the staff, but the commission, she's gonna have to be. As you were saying earlier, Mark, she's going to have to build consensus. That's how those places work. And it's not always R's versus D's. Right. Just like to bring to bring up another major event this week. You know, I, I'm, I just I, everybody paints with a broad brush. The media paints with a broad brush. The media leads 
all of us to believe that this country is like starkly divided and everything's going to happen along partisan lines. And look at what happened this week with the Affordable Care Act case in the Supreme Court. It was decided by, well, it was a seven to two or six to three majority mark. Seven to two. Seven to two. Seven to two decided on standing grounds, not on the merits of the uh, of the ACA. But it, 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 I was surprised. I was surprised it was 7-2. I thought we'd be lucky if it came out 5-4. It's the third time now that the ACA has survived the Supreme Court. I think probably the last time. Yeah. Uh, there's no case on its way to the Supreme Court for a long time now. I guess. The, my, but my point is, you know, that you cannot right. assume... You can't assume. And there was another, there was a religious freedoms case decided by the court this week where the liberal wing joined with justice, new justice, Amy Coney Barrett and, and um, chief justice Roberts and justice Kavanaugh. And it's, it's not, it's just not that simple. Not, nor is it that simple at the federal trade commission. Right. You know, as I said, it doesn't always break down along partisan lines. The control of staff is real. Yeah. I mean, and don't, don't you think when we're talking about the Supreme court too, that there is, there are a few things the press cover more, more poorly than the Supreme court because they are so used to, they try and simplify it and they try and kind of summarize everything in Democrats versus Republicans and the way that Congress and presidential elections had covered it. To your point, Howard, that is just not how the court works. There is some, uh, you know, kind of binary, uh, you know, viewpoints and things like that, that you can simplify it a little bit, but, you know, sometimes there's just these strange coalitions. And so I think as everyone is looking to next summer, when we're going to get the big ruling on, uh, on the, the prospect of Roe versus Wade uh, getting overturned. We just have to remember that before everyone starts assuming they know what's going to happen. I know. For the record, I think I told you that and you disagreed with (laughs) me. So I'm putting the stake in the ground that that case is not going to be as as divided as as you think. it is. So you're predicting that. I think I, too, made that point on a podcast several weeks ago. That exact point. Starry decisis. But we'll see. I mean, listen, I'm not going that far, but we'll see. The point here is Mark is saying, thank God, Amy Coney Barrett and Brett Kavanaugh are on the Supreme Court. He fought so hard to get them on. No question. And and thank God Mitch McConnell stuck to his guns and got both of those folks on. Well, I'll tell you this. Thank God Justice Roberts is on the court because he, I think when we look back on the last four years, uh, no offense to those of us who m- may or may not like uh, Donald J. Trump. Justice Roberts, I've said this before, is the most conse- will be one of the most consequential historical figures of this period. I think he has literally saved the republic more than more than once. And so I, I just think, and I try with our clients, we try with our clients to, this is no different than what we do every day. That's my point. It's yep. never broad brush. It's always, it's always nuanced. 
And part of the reason we do this podcast is to extrapolate from what's in the news and use it to hopefully shed some light for people on how this town actually works. And that's how it actually works. Yeah. Well, and at the Supreme Court level, and I do want to thank Towner and Caitlin for the three Trump uh, appointments, because so far they have continued a two and a half, 250 year history of appointees disappointing the president who appointed them right out of the box. They didn't play with the election, which is why Trump thought he was putting them there. And now on the ACA and and a number of uh, previous cases, there have been coalitions that, that formed around the law, not around the party of the president who appointed them. And you can be sure that down there in Mar-a-Lago, there's no love lost for these three appointees at this point. But that's the history. That's uh, Earl Warren surprising President Eisenhower with Brown versus Board. You think Trump cares? I don't think he cares. I think he cares that they didn't overturn the election. I don't think he gives that's uh, ass, if I may say so, about <laughs> the ACA case. I guess I did just say so. And. And Towner, when you and I were uh, playing golf this week alongside former President Barack Obama, I mean, you, you we had a discussion about uh, with Patrick, by the way, nice shirt, Patrick. Um, about by the um, way, alongside like on adjacent holes, not like he was our fourth member of our, our group. Although that would be cool. Although that would have been fun. Shout out to Fox Hall as the fourth. Um, Towner, we talked about how most of this, oh, there's plenty of bipartisanship. Yeah. yeah. And and things we work on every day are bipartisan. It just, that's not what makes the news. No, if you're one of the four or five topics that's in the news, you, you got a problem because you're locked up in a, in a partisan battle. But Congress is still doing the blocking and tackling that is governing uh, on a regular basis. It's been a little different during COVID, uh, certainly, because- Congress hasn't been able to meet as much because of the pandemic and and they can't have as many votes because of the, the social distancing and the like. But there hasn't been a normal authorization bill that's been stopped, essentially, uh, as a result of partisanship. We passed a defense authorization bill on a bipartisan basis for the last 60 years in a row annually. Uh, the, the Water Resources Development Act, the highway bill, you name it, all of the things that the Congress does normally and in a bipartisan negotiated way are getting done. And that's that. And it's actually better for our clients because those top five issues take up all of the oxygen. And so when we're talking about the normal legislating that happens where where most of our clients have a particular issue, I mean, we're not going out, you know, waging a Supreme Court battle usually uh, with our clients. They want, you know, they want a, a policy change that can be contained in a in a regular authorization bill. And those things now actually fly under the radar and are a little bit easier to accomplish yeah. uh, as a result of uh, of these top issues just taking out all the oxygen. Last thing, China, the China bill was very significant, Howard. You, I know, have thoughts on that. But that, in addition to the ordinary course defense reauthorization stuff, that that was an important and and relevant and new policy statement that 
that passed, uh, I think it passed with more votes than the Juneteenth holiday, actually. Listen, so. I mean, there's going to be a vigorous debate in this town for the next however many years on big tech and what it should look like and what these platforms should be allowed to grow into and what they should be allowed to acquire to acquire and required to divest. And that's a healthy dialogue. Like it should be robust. It should be intense. Um, people should be pushing. It's not a bad thing. Personally, I shudder to think what the last year would have been like if, Amazon Prime wasn't available to me, but don't get too personal. One of the challenges that is not partisan, that is equally true on both sides of the aisle, more true maybe even in the Senate than the House, is the difficulty of just understanding what the technology is. This is a debate that is taking place among men and women, more more men than women, who don't really have the knowledge base about about these companies to make the policy. Yeah. Well, my, my point is that it makes a Linacon more important because she actually does understand what this is about. Really? And yeah. I, I think she has a better grip. She's 32. I mean, nothing against young people serving in senior positions in government since I was once I'll, one, but I'll I wasn't the chair the, of the I'll FTC. I mean, Chairwoman Khan's understanding of big tech against Chuck Grassley's any day. Okay. But that doesn't, that doesn't mean anything. Well, <laughs> Chuck Grassley's writing a bill. It doesn't mean anything. I mean, Matchers against his staff and who she's, she's a great promoter. Um, she's a great promoter and she's smart, well, but yeah, I, I'm you don't making, my only point is know. that these issues and it isn't an R and D thing and it isn't even a young and, and old thing or an administration and Hill thing. These are issues that are increasingly complicated, complex, require a level of experience and understanding to make wise policy. And I I think we have some catching up to do there. Mark, Congress is getting younger. You're getting right. older. They're getting younger. Uh, and they actually understand these issues. <laughs> I'm getting older. Well, that's so why I say the House, I think, has a better grip than the Senate for that reason. I don't know about that, but... It's but Are issues of tech. Yes. Okay. <laughs> yes. The um. I just think. I mean, look, it's it's fine. I'm not anti her appointment, but it don't don't equate being a smart academic, yeah, law school school grad with knowing how to make the sausage, and knowing what should happen with big tech. I mean, those are very very different things. And we all know that life experience matters a lot and perspective matters a lot. And she is, the only thing I can assure you is that she has more to learn than she already knows. Oh, for sure. 
unlike so, the unlike the five of us, of course. Well, <laughs> let's shift gears and. I mean, I think you have to look at some of this in the context of uh, the election next year and uh, the desire to preserve the House and Senate majorities, or at least the 50-50 split in the Senate, which gives them control. The I mean, one interesting thing, just talking about the FTC for one more minute, is if Chopra goes to the CFPB, it's a two to two FTC and she has to work with Republican counterparts. And by the way, as I've said before, I've seen as much disagreement amongst people in the same party on some issues as I have between people in the same party and the other party. So we are with infrastructure right now, for example. And I mean, is Biden, he is, is he going to move Chopra? I mean, I think he's going to keep him there for a while, but then eventually, you know, he's got to get an up or down vote on his CFPB nomination. And is Biden okay with that? Uh, eventually the the fact that there, there are still a number of regulatory positions that are open um, in government. He's not being, He's being super progressive and aggressive in some respects, not as much others. But Towner, is he trying to uh, control the reins a little bit on the amount of progressive policymaking that goes on or, or not in light of the fact that the election is on the horizon? Yeah, that's a good question, because he is putting progressives, in my opinion, at pretty much every level of government right now. I would say uh, that uh, the folks he has actually appointed uh, to agencies are a heck of a lot more progressive, generally speaking, uh, than he is. Uh, and and I think this is uh, this is trying to put points on the board with the progressives. Uh, if if they feel like they're being represented in the agencies, Maybe the White House doesn't sign off on their policies at the end of the day, but at least uh, he is putting uh, some some entities in power uh, that are going to help him remain in power. I think Trump did the same thing. Uh, Trump, you know, yeah. didn't come into office being a conservative, but he put a lot of conservatives in at the agencies uh, early on in his administration before he started firing all of them uh, immediately. But uh, uh, but, you know, he's he's trying to Biden here and doing the same thing Trump did protect his bona fides. There's a history of, of presidents appointing people to the more extreme of their own party too. some of this. I remember reading in. Uh, Bill Clinton's memoir. You, sometimes what ends up happening is you make appointments because you're worried you can't. You're not going to be able to deliver on policy, and it's a way to placate your base a little bit. You say, "Okay, I'm going to give them all these jobs in government because, frankly, I'm not sure I'm going to be able to deliver on all of their legislative expectations." And that it's not a crazy strategy. Trump's, I think, was a little more not. His was a little more. He was seeding the stuff he didn't care about as much. Uh, to people who immensely cared and, he and didn't had have things a they wanted. Right. And I, I, exactly. And I think he, it was, you know, it was his way of keeping the Republican coalition together by giving them the government to do what they wanted with it because he wanted to do other stuff. And so I, I think that, and frankly, it kind of makes weird political sense. So I don't, think Biden, I don't think Biden's doing anything different than than any uh, previous president and kind of trying to deliver appointments that 
keep the base happy. I'm just not sure that he's actually following through on a lot of it. Yes. I mean, I totally agree. He's putting progressive nominees and, and appointees in place, but there are plenty of places where there are still vacancies, including atop some of the key regulatory agencies. Um, and where things aren't happening. And I guess I just, I wonder if he's trying to have his cake and eat it too. But if it's, your thought is right, that, yeah, he's, he's um, putting these progressives in place that want generational change. Why? Because look at the Senate map in uh, 18 months, less than 18 months, Pennsylvania, North Carolina, Arizona, Georgia, New Hampshire, it's Ohio, Ohio um, it's and so on. It's if if they're going to keep Wisconsin, Nevada, um, if they're going to if if they're going to keep or obtain or you know keep these seats in the Democratic column, they. They cannot be pursued. I don't think a hyper progressive agenda helps them. I, I completely a thousand percent agree with you. And I think he's banking on many of these appointments, not having a policy impact to the degree that will shape the elections. I just think that's, that's sort of the bet he's making now, Howard, as you know, having served in high level government positions, that's a risk because you could have an agency go and do something uh, that is wildly politically out of step with what you think is going to help you in the midterm. So there obviously is some, some political risk. The other thing I would say is, you know, progressives in the party, uh, they just don't, there is such a disagreement about what politically works and what doesn't. We see, we see, we've seen it the last couple of weeks with progressive groups coming out and criticizing everything Joe Manchin is doing. And I can just say, I am certain that they are wrong. <laughs> the progressive groups have no idea how to win elections in red states. Well, they have they have absolutely no idea. The, the problem is they have an increasingly good idea of how to win primaries. Well, hundred percent. They couldn't agree more. That's, yes, that's where both parties are stuck. You know, in all those states, Howard just mentioned. The Republican candidate for the United States Senate is almost certain to be a bona fide Trumpster. That's where the primary energy is on the Republican side. And we're going to see on our side whether we serve up a progressive nominee to run against a Trumpster where you'll have both both extremes on the ballot and, and the middle will be left out. That's we we have. I will say we have done a pretty on the Democratic side a pretty good job of limiting those primary challenges and political problems to congressional races and not so statewide races and not presidential primaries. That now, but if so, there's a trend, it's going the wrong way. I mean, that's yeah. you know we've seen it happen to Republicans. They should have taken back the Senate in 2010. They had a horrible group of nominees in a bunch of very winnable Senate races. And so and the Democratic Party absolutely could go that direction, too. In the Virginia Democrat, in the Virginia uh, gubernatorial primary on the Republican side, the nominee um, is is a more mainstream business oriented Main Street Republican, not not a Trumpster. 
Mark said. Get, that, right. Getting that getting your Democratic candidate. Getting your butt kicked in a bunch of consecutive elections too <laughs> will start to clarify things a little bit. I mean, you, you remember Democrats lost three straight presidential elections and suddenly Bill Clinton was a completely acceptable nominee. I, I mean, Virginia Republicans, I just think they're tired of losing. And frankly, uh, you know, that that does have an impact when you're out of power for a really long time. Howard, I, I think you're onto something here, though, uh, and I'll agree with my uh, my Democratic colleagues here as well. I think Biden's nominating all these progressives to take them off of the playing field for the midterm elections. You know, these are all <laughs> folks who might run for office, right. uh, who could be in a primary. He's he's locking them all away. And, and if we had just had Elizabeth Warren yeah. uh, running well, some no, agency, no. then Wait. she wouldn't be. Yeah. Yeah. AOC is appointed as Howard has been advocating <laughs> yeah. for years when she's appointed deputy treasury secretary. So he can clear the field for Schumer. We're going to know you're right, Towner. She can definitely have that job because the deputy doesn't do anything. So she can she can have that job. I don't want her near any monetary policy, please. I don't even care if no. Uh, He's not getting in the building. uh, No, definitely not. Caitlin, what what are your thoughts on on how all this impacts 22? Look, we've seen the White House blow through deadline after deadline after deadline. Every week we're telling clients this is the week that we're going to know whether they're walking away from a bipartisan deal on infrastructure or not. And now we've got a group of 21 senators on board with the compromise. And I think that that is indicative of everything we've been saying. Biden realizes He didn't have a mandate in this election. It is a 50-50 Senate, and the House is only has a a four-seat Democratic majority. He has to work with both sides of the aisle, and I think that that is going to lend itself. um, I also think that there's a realization that they don't have the votes to pass some of these hyper-progressive American family plan, free college for everyone, free everything for everyone, um, the, the plan, they don't, they simply don't have the votes with the 50-50 Senate. I think that, you know, 2020 is going to be a very interesting year. We've got on the Republican side, we're going to hopefully see some interesting candidates jump in. I was looking at Maggie Hassan's um, polling. She's underwater today on her approval ratings. I know that a lot of the Republican Party is waiting to see if Governor uh, Kristen Nunu jumps in. And I think that there are some pickup opportunities as long as, and Mark, to your point, I completely agree, we don't move towards this embracing Trump and, you know, let, let's let's look forward. As McConnell likes to do, let's just look yeah. forward. Let's not look backwards. And we need to get some good candidates in these positions. Yeah. And I think Republicans have a good chance of picking up a yeah. couple of people. See, I, that, I do. Go ahead. Back to where we started, I think that some of the things that are being labeled as progressive in this administration are actually populist, not progressive. And populist equals popular. And they're popular across the spectrum. Um, Things like big tech is popular. And so I think they're being, they're they're shrewd. These these people know what they're doing. They're being the super thoughtful about it, and they're much more interested in how these things play out in Pennsylvania, Ohio, North Carolina, Arizona, and Georgia, Wisconsin, Nevada, and New Hampshire <laughs> than they are in the side the Beltway. The the real test of all the above, though, to uh, the infrastructure point that 
Caitlin made about 21 senators on a bipartisan bill. Whether there is a bipartisan infrastructure bill or not, and it looks like there may actually be, there is going to be an attempt at a massive reconciliation that does everything that the infrastructure bill didn't. I don't know if there are 50 Democratic votes for that, but that's where, Howard, you're going to see the progressive, moderate divide in the Democratic Party play out. And the Republicans, by definition, the reconciliation are simply irrelevant. So I I don't think the idea of a new New Deal kind of reconciliation package, I know it has not been abandoned, having talked to a number of Democratic senators just this week when Patrick had me running in and out of empty office buildings in Washington on Monday. Uh, oh, Mark, yeah. don't complain. You had a good trip home on the Acela. Lo- lovely trip home. <laughs> How did we not leave with that? <laughs> right. Got a lot of reading done, watched a movie. For those that. of you unaware, Mark Alderman spent the evening on Monday on an Acela between somewhere between here and there. New Carrollton, eight hours. I will say, though, to credit you on a lack of complaining, you didn't text us till like 430 in the morning. So I, I, I would have been I would have been giving everyone like hourly updates about my misery. So I was pretty impressed with you. Book. I watched uh, I watched the hard day's night for the 111th time. I, I was doing OK till I started texting you guys. Yeah. Well, but but my point remains, I have heard emphatically from a handful of. Democratic senators on on all sides of the spectrum, not Joe Manchin or Kristen Sinema. Yeah. But, but the Bob Casey's of the world are emphatic that they are going to put a massive families plan reconciliation package to the test. They're, gonna, they're certainly going to try. And the, the best way to get the first package done is to at least just convince the progressives that that's what's going to happen next, regardless of if it actually is going right. to happen. Like if, right. I'm, if I'm Joe Manson and Kristen Cinema, you know, Bernie and all these people are complaining that, well, I need I need a commitment from them that they're going to vote for the second bigger thing. I would just say, sure. I'd tell them whatever they want to hear just to get the bipartisan deal done. Well, I think on the big ticket items, watch those states because the last thing this administration wants is to lose the United States Senate control that they have. But their theory is that if they get this done, they they think that doing stuff is the way to win. I I need Caitlin to send me the draft where everything's free. I, I missed that that version. But they think that doing stuff where some of it's free is is the way to win the election. Yeah, the other stuff is paid for by massive tax increases. So that's, yeah. I will say, I mean, if all that's left after a bipartisan deal, if they are able to get it through and the White House supports it and the support is there, if all that's left is most of the American families plan and a bunch of tax increases, that's going to be an awfully hard bill for a lot of members to vote for, not just mansion and cinema but a whole bunch of house members in tough races and it's that's like to i mean that's you know that's all that's leaving your vegetables is the last thing on your dinner plate (laughs) expecting they're gonna finish it uh, yeah but so so what happens when 
a bipartisan infrastructure plan passes and no progressives vote for it in either house. The squad votes against it in the house, but Republicans help carry Republicans and Democrats get together about 30 each uh, in the Senate. Wouldn't that be something? Side, and Wouldn't that be it. something? I, I, was say, I, I would have been disappointed if the squad had not made an appearance in this. Uh, <laughs> so thank you for that. <laughs> They've already come out against the. Nobody cares what the squad thinks. If they're able to pass town or the type of bill, talk about something that would be good for the country. If you could get roughly an even amount of Democrats and Republicans and you have the White House supporting it. That in in the Patrick Martin like what makes sense world that sounds awfully good to me if you can if you can get a, a group that big uh, and the only people not voting for it are the the ones on the extremes of both parties that would be that would be excellent. It, it sounds great. Biden's going to have to appoint a lot more progressives to the federal agencies to make up for that <laughs> oh, failure. Yeah. So. Oh yeah. Well. No, because then they're going to try the new New Deal, American Families Plan, $4 trillion reconciliation, paid for with tax increases. I'm doubtful, like you are, Towner, uh, that, that that can pass. But I promise you they're going to try it. Schumer is going to run it. Pelosi is going to run it. Biden is going to support it. And it's probably not going to make it. They're not even going to make it to the bill. They're not even going to pass. Yeah, that sounds like HR one, right? I mean, that sounds like that. Yeah, I mean, it, that's. But that's they exactly. still on reconciliation. They still need to pass a budget right, that lays right. out those priorities. They can't even pass that, so right, they won't right. even craft the actual four trillion dollar bag. What the Biden administration knows, I think, though, is that getting a bi big bipartisan infrastructure deal, regardless of what happens on the second step, and if progressives are disappointed. To Howard's point about the states that matter next year, they know that's good politics. That is totally delivering on what they promised during the election. And Caitlin, you've said every week, like they promised bipartisanship and they didn't get it. If that's the if that's ultimately the track we go, that is a political grand slam for the White House. And they know it. you're right. It's hard to run. It's hard for Republicans to run against that. And that's why McConnell, by the way, is like completely silent on the entire thing. I mean, if there is Schumer, Schumer is Schumer is quietly like, okay, you know, this is a, like McConnell knows he is. He's like, say, he's doing a Lee Trevino, just like I'm. I'm a hundred and ten percent in on that deal if it has some money for Amtrak. Okay, we need we need we need <laughs> to work the new on the new Carrollton station. Yeah. Well, we can leave it there. A uh, good debate as always. And gosh, it feels like the busiest time of the year because guess what? Kind of is. And uh, there's, a, there's a ton going on. It's going to be a really interesting run up to the 4th of July. And we will be back next week once more before our 4th of July recess. And we'll keep uh, keep talking about what's going on and looking forward to it. Towner, Caitlin, Mark, Patrick, thank you. You've been listening to The Beltway Briefing, a podcast from Cozen O'Connor Public Strategies with perspectives from both sides of the aisle. Please subscribe to our podcast so our episodes are automatically sent to you when they are released. The Beltway Briefing Podcast has been produced by Hometown Podcasts and Audio, Washington, D.C.